this morning is August 22nd. It's Sunday. Our topic this morning is going to be unlikely servants. It occurred to me as I was studying this morning, the last few weeks' messages all had themes that built on something, but they're also missing something. And so I wanted to tell you a little bit about it. In the last few weeks, starting with three weeks ago and moving forward, we preached on a subject called Princes of the Universe. You know, it's almost terrible. We took a Queen song (laughs) written by a homosexual activist named Freddie Mercury and talked about how even the world has insight into the fact that God has ordained that some would rise to become princes and rule with him over others. That's what the whole Bible teaches. Now, this guy had it wrong in a song about who that would be. It's, it's certainly, certainly not the, uh, the people that have chosen to align themselves with his lifestyle that rise to be princes of the universe. But we looked at that and we studied a man's life named Adonai Bezek. Anybody remember that? What a strange name. Adonai is a... Uh, a corruption of the word Adonai, which means, you know, it's speaking of the Almighty God, the uh, uh, all-providing God. Uh-oh. So Adonai Bezek was this guy. Bezek meant lightning. And this guy whose name was Adonai Bezek, yeah, how about that lightning, was a counterfeit for God. Uh, Adonai was what he called himself, although he wasn't Adonai. Bezek was lightning. He was like Satan. And he went around, and when he captured a king, he cut off their thumb and their big toe. And the Bible says he had 70 kings that he had done this to. So why thumb and big toe? Anybody that's ever really injured a big toe knows how hard it is to walk without it. If you've ever seen somebody without a thumb, and that movie Meet the Parents has to come to mind when you talk about it, you know the thumb's an integral part of your hand. He didn't kill these kings. He wanted to humiliate them, rob them of their authority, rob them of what made them men. And we looked at how there is an enemy in the world who does that, who is looking to rob Christians of their authority, what makes us godly. In fact, the priesthood, when they were anointed by God, had their thumbs and their big toes anointed because it's what makes us men. And it's what distinguishes us. It's what shows authority. So... From that message, we learned that there's an enemy that's out there that is trying to rob the authority that God gave us. And then we moved on to a message called Short, and it was about Zacchaeus. This guy who was a sinner, a chief among sinners, a tax collector. But God provided a sycamore fig tree because he wanted to see Jesus. So this guy climbed the sycamore fig tree so that he could see Jesus. And when Jesus came his way and got close to him, He heard the voice of Jesus and became obedient. From that, we learn that God's provided various things in our lives. Sycamore fig tree in Zacchaeus' life was Israel and the religion of Israel. In our life, it might have been the Baptist church, the Methodist church. It might have been an old grandmother who prayed for us when we were kids. It could be all kinds of things. But he provided something that would allow you to get close to see Jesus so you could hear his word. And then last week, all the women loved this message. We preached on married to a fool. And everybody immediately began to point at their spouses, you know. Not, not, not really. My, my wife did, but not, not anybody else. And the idea behind married to a fool was we looked at a marriage in the Bible between two people. One's name was Nabal, and his name meant fool. And his wife was Abigail, and her name means my father rejoices. And we saw in their lives Abigail's actions bore true to her name. They were things that caused her heavenly father to rejoice, but in Nabal's life, he lived true to his name. He showed himself to be a fool. Not that he lacked intelligence. He was very wise, at least in the way of the world. He lacked moral intelligence to make decisions that would be pleasing to God. And as about the time of the message, we all would want to turn and point to our spouses and and label one Abigail or one fool, we realize that when two people are married, the Bible says they're one flesh. So Abigail and Nabal were one flesh. Just like each one of us has a part of us that is pleasing to God that makes the Father rejoice. But we also have a part of us, Nabal, our flesh, that is foolish and makes wrong choices. And as I started thinking about that, I said, wow, we have these three messages. And that was good. I was excited. They they were uh, ordained by God that they would be preached. I said, what would complete that? I, I was actually kind of worried. Where do you go from there? And as I started to think about it, I started thinking about the kind of servants that God chooses. See, I don't want you to get the idea that because you have a weakness... Because sometimes Nabal speaks in your life. Or because sometimes you found yourself as a prisoner 
to Adonai Bezek. You've had your thumbs and toes cut off. You find yourself in a bad way in life, that it's over. And when we start thinking about the kind of people that God calls, it's really encouraging. So that's, that's what we're going to look at today, and it's called Unlikely Servants. You can take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews is in the New Testament. Those of you that have a Thompson chain, I'll give you a page number here in just a minute. It's hiding for me at the moment. We're going to be in the second chapter of Hebrews, which is on page 1330. If you find Titus and hang a ride or any, all the T's together in the Bible, or all the T's are together in the Bible, that helps you find things. Page 1330, we're in Hebrews chapter 2 and uh, verse 1. With this idea that we're called to be princes, that we're in warfare with Adonai Bezek, that we're fighting to control our flesh. Listen to what the Bible says. Chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributing, distributed according to his will. That's what we see in the present, even in this church today. When people are calling on God, and I know it's strange sometimes to hear people speak in other tongues or to see people pray for healing and all, these are supposed to be signs that let people know God's with the church. That's why the devil's worked so hard to keep it out of church. It's why it makes us all so uncomfortable sometimes. There's a big part of us that would rather just run our churches a little more like businesses and be a little more respectable than that. But I encourage you to take the attitude of David, that when his wife looked at him and said, you're acting like any undignified fellow would because he was dancing before the Lord, he said, yet will I be more undignified than this? You know, he said, baby, you hadn't seen the beginning yet. I'll make a fool of myself if it's what pleases God. Here's where we were getting to. Verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. The subject of that quote, I mean, it's, it's an Old Testament quote. And the subject, it, it comes from Psalms, is man. What is man that you're mindful of? Lord, why do you even care about men? I mean, if you look around, you see men doing all kinds of things that we know are not pleasing God. So why do you even care? And listen, it says that we were made a little lower than the angels. Some translations say for a little while you'll be lower than the angels. Because everything has been made subject to who? Men. You know, I've always read that just thinking about Jesus. The Bible is clearly teaching that mankind, and we know it's a select group, a remnant, will rule the entire earth. Everything will be subject. Even the angels, the Bible teaches, will be judged by men. Paul tells us that. He says if you have a dispute in the church, he said you can take the least in the church, whoever you consider to be the least, to judge the dispute. He said... If you can't, how are we going to judge angels one day? I mean, Paul taught that. Now, here's a question, though. If the Bible says everything is subject to men, why don't we see that? Why don't we feel that? Things are happening all the time we don't have any control over that we sure don't like. I'm not particularly happy that my father's bone's not growing as fast as it should or as fast as I might like it to. not particularly happy that David is in a job that he's not happy with. So why can't I... If everything's been made subject, I mean, just snap my fingers and see it change. Why not? Well, he goes on to explain this. He says, In putting everything under him, God left nothing that was not subject to him. Yet, at the present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus. I'll go on and finish that in a minute. Here's what's happened. One man who identified with us in every way, through weakness, through suffering, through everything that can happen to men, has submitted to death in order to conquer it and been raised into a position where he is declared 
to have the fullness of God in him. He's even declared to be God. We don't see everything subject to us at the moment. But we do see the testimony of Jesus, which is man's ultimate destination. Do you know that when the Bible calls you body of Christ, it is not a figure of speech. You are literally called to be a part of Jesus. Christ means the anointed one. In fact, it really speaks of the collection of the anointed ones. That's why the, the house of God is described as a house. It's even described as a house with many rooms. Jesus is the head, but you are the members of the body. We see that he's in control, but we don't always see that lived out everywhere. There are things that happen that we don't like, even in our own lives. Have you ever struggled with the fact that you've been given authority over sin, and yet you find yourself sinning? <laughs> Do you love how I say that? Find yourself sinning, as if you just you know, didn't know it was happening. <laughs> you know, woke up and went, wow, I'm sinning. Now, I, w- w- that's kind of where our subject matter is today. It says, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory, honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In, bring many, in bringing many sons, that's you and I, to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. If you'll suffer with Jesus, if you will make Jesus your highest priority, it doesn't matter what position you're in, how much you've suffered, how weak you are, he's not ashamed to call you his brother or consider you part of his family. And the Psalms declared this. So did Isaiah. Listen to what it says. I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of congregation. I will sing your praises. That's Jesus speaking of you. He'll sing your praises in the congregation of the saints. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We're going to go on and finish that. But it's perfectly normal to have a fear of death when you don't have a security that is brought by Jesus. See, man was given a fear of death to draw us towards Jesus. This is why in young people's lives they tend to think they are six foot Seven, eight feet tall, invincible, and bulletproof. But as people get older and they become more aware of their frailty and judgment is closer than before, you begin to think about it and it begins to bother you. Have you noticed that at some point in people's lives they go from reading the sports page to reading the obituaries? I've watched that in in my uh, stepfather's life. You know, there was a day when that would not have been interesting at all. And now it's something that he wants to see if any of his friends are in there. Which, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a natural progression, and it's for one purpose. To introduce you in a meaningful way to the guy that destroyed death so that you can be free of your fear of it. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. I read all of this to get to this verse. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. In all of our quest to put the flesh under. In all of our understanding of what has brought us closer to God. In all of our struggle against the powers of this world that want you to fail. That rejoice when you're having problems. We're not left without an advocate. We have a merciful high priest who understands from literally walking in your shoes what you struggle with. There there are two reactions that people tend to have that keep them out of victorious Christian living. Here's one. It keeps them out of Christ. Well, that's for them. It's not that I don't think they're right. It's that I don't think I could ever do that. Who has ever thought they could do it? You know... When you look at the list of people that Jesus called, he called murderers, he called adulterers, he called people accused of rape, he called people that had lived their lives in prison, he called farmers to rebuke kings. He uses unlikely people. So that's number one. People are kept out of the kingdom because they just don't think they could do that. Our friend Buzz Treme, walking in a a nuclear plant one day, says, man, all these Christians are flakes. 
the Lord spoke to him and said, why don't you be a real one then? The thought had never occurred. I had a very similar experience. Most of you have had an experience at some point when you began to think, maybe I could do that. But immediately you're, you're overwhelmed with all of your weaknesses. For me, and I was a young man, so I had the problems that young men had, have. I was really worried that I could not quit things that had been habitual in my life. Everything from violence to a dirty mouth to all kind of other things that all re- revolve around flesh and sin. And at some point, I came to the place where I said, I'm full of weaknesses, Lord. Why would you even want me? And I found his strength for the first time in my life. Now, I've been talking about prior to Christ. How about in Christ? When you go to do something for God, when you say, when you get an invitation to preach, when you get an invitation to go talk to somebody about Jesus, to get a new job, whatever it is that God's called you to do, immediately you think of every reason that you can't. And this is no different than it's been for thousands of years. 1,600 years before Jesus, some 3,600 years ago, God was speaking from a bush that was not burning that was full of fire on a mountaintop. I mean, a visual demonstration to a man named Moses. And Moses spent the first half of the conversation telling God why he was not able to do anything for him. Lord, I'm a failure. What is amazing is that we serve the kind of God that waits until you realize just what a failure you are to use you in a meaningful way. And, you know, to the world, this looks crazy. It's like every other paradox where Jesus says really confusing things. Like, if you want to find life, you must lose it. Well, okay. You know, how do I do that? <laughs> you know? Uh, the gospel is, is predicated on the fact. It is dependent upon the fact that God doesn't need your strength to accomplish anything. In fact, it's a hindrance. He does not call you to do things that are within your capabilities. So from the beginning of salvation right on through, you should feel like a fish out of water. You should feel like there's no way I could live like that. There's no way I could do these things. And yet something in you compels you to do it. You should feel like every time you're called to move to Sugarland, to move to Katy, to enter a new area, to do whatever it is, you should feel inept. And you don't deny that. You don't deny the fact that you're weak. You know, one of the problems I have with this um, uh, divine health type teaching is it denies that humans have weaknesses. You're not sick. That's just a symptom. No, buddy, I am sick and I need God's help and I'm not ashamed to mention it. Once you get to a place where you face the weaknesses, listen how Romans 4.13 says it. It says, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. And that his wife's womb was barren since she was almost a hundred years old. And yet he did not waver regarding unbelief because he reasoned that God was able to perform what he had promised. So what happens is you say, Lord, I don't know why you'd want me. I don't know why you would use me. I sure don't feel capable of what you're telling me to do in the kingdom or out. And yet you look at that, you realize I'm full of weaknesses and you say, if he wants me to do it, He must give me the strength to accomplish it. This is how a young man named David can look out there at Goliath and not waver, not look to the left, not to the right, but be incensed by everybody around him that's more capable than him. says, y'all are going to let this guy defame God's name? Who is he to defy the armies of the living God? David knew that when he faced Goliath, it was not him facing Goliath, but God in him. That's how we face our problems. Friends, there's always going to be Goliath in your life. There will always be something that keeps you. Something that says you can't, you won't. And you don't deny weakness to get over that. You don't pretend like you have it all together and say, oh yeah, well, I can do this. You acknowledge the fact that you can't and you trust God to help you do it. You push fear aside and you do it. People stay out of the kingdom because they think they can't. In the kingdom, people don't grow. They don't do what God calls them to do because they think they can't. God called you because you can't and you know it. That's why He uses you. If you knew you can't and then you did it, who gets glory for that? You know there had to be a divine help for it. That's the kind of people God uses. Now, you say, but those people are different than I am. It's funny. We get so churchy. You know, we cover up our tattoos. We throw away our cigarettes, we do all of these things, and we dress nice and neat, and we sit on pews. And 
people that are outside of the church look and they can't relate to that. You know, they, they wonder why all of a sudden David, who used to be just like everybody else, who was having a good time drinking beer and watching football, is now dressed in a tie in a three-piece suit and walks around saying, you know, bless you, brother. And, you know, and that's not really the case with David, but they can't relate to it. And we dress ourselves up to something that is an image that we're trying to portray that ought not be there. Listen to what Paul says about people who were called. Now, this is, this is our hero in the faith. Yeah, I'm sorry, David. I wasn't talking about you. David rarely ever dresses like that. Although you did look good last Sunday. Yeah, ushers wear red. I think you understand what I'm talking about. Somebody you grew up with that you used to wrestle and fight with and chase girls with and do everything else with now is a Christian. All of a sudden they have a dainty handshake. They're talking in a, an octave that they don't normally talk in. And, and they wouldn't step on a roach because, you know, they, they're just scared to, to hurt anything. God called men and women, and you don't cease to be that. He just reshapes you. He does not make you a cookie cutter of some evangelist that you see on TV. He called you uniquely. And not everything about you is wrong. Friends, your personality does not have to change in Jesus. It just needs to be remolded a little bit. You like to talk a lot? He probably can use that in the kingdom. You don't like to talk very much, but you're a good listener? He can probably use that in the kingdom. You don't have to cease to be who you are. You just gain His influence and direction in your life. And too often people sit in the church and they see a pastor and they say, I have to be just like him. That's why God called people like me. So you can look and go, oh, there's no way I want to be just like that. You know, some other version, but not him maybe. You know, I hear the words that are coming out of his mouth, but I don't want to live like him. You know. Turn to Corinthians. From Hebrews, you'll hang a left. You'll pass through all of the T's. You'll pass through Philippians and Ephesians and Galatians. And uh, you'll see the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to pass it and go to the first one. This is 1 Corinthians 1. What kind of people does God call? It's going to be on page 1266. Watch this. This is 1 Corinthians 1.26 on page 1266. It says, uh, Brothers, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Oh, thank you. Not many of you were influential. Oh, thanks. Not many of you were of noble birth. No kidding. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, we would never do this with Paul, because we've elevated Paul to this status that is would be Pope-like if we were Catholic, but since... None of us really admire the Pope. I, I don't know what the right adjective is, but we to demagogue-like status. He's sitting here and he's describing the kind of people that are called to Christianity. And it's almost insulting, isn't it? You know? It's because we've realized that even if you were born a senator's son, even if that was you, it doesn't make you important. Even if you were born to wealth, that's not what makes you important. Paul took the attitude that whatever he was in his life before Christ, he counted as nothing. I mean, that was the... Yeah, everybody's mouthing who knows what that Greek word is. He counted it as dung, is what he said, you know. Uh, it reminds me, though, of this... I was preaching on, on Balaam one time, and one of the things that got me to talk about Balaam and his donkey was something that I heard on TV. You know, I... I catch a humorous statement sometimes and for whatever reason it sets my mind off on a rabbit trail. As you're hearing this, not many of you are wise, not many of you are noble and all of those things. It's kind of a backhanded compliment, you know. On the one hand it's good because you know that it's Christ who makes you strong. On the other he's saying look, look how pathetic uh, this is. That's, I mean that's almost what he's saying to him. It's like this preacher who's preaching on, on Balaam and the donkey. And uh, I heard this story and then later preached on it. I didn't get the same reaction and I was thankful. You remember Balaam was a prophet. 
And uh, he didn't understand what God was, was trying to do in putting an angel in his path. He couldn't see this angel who's trying to prevent him from going somewhere. So Balaam's donkey stopped, and he, Balaam hit the donkey. And uh, this happened a couple times. And one time the donkey even crammed him up against a, a rock, hurt, hurt his feet. Everybody in here can sympathize with that looking at my dad's cast, you know. I mean, you, you know, an animal, if it pushes you into something because it weighs so much, can hurt. Well, Balaam got ticked off, and he hit, hit this donkey again. And it's one of the only times in the Bible anything like this happens, but the donkey spoke to him. The jackass spoke and said, hey, why'd you hit me, you know? And this is a, a familiar story to, to a lot of people. So this preacher's relating this to a group, kind of like Paul was relating, not many of you are noble, just relating a story. And afterwards he was wondering if it was any good. And a lady from the audience came up. Uh-oh, phone's ringing. A lady from the audience. Yeah, that's in that purse. Uh, oh, it's Okay. Called him up that way. That's Jeremiah 33.3, the Lord's phone number. So so the lady from the audience comes up, and and the preacher's thinking, you know, was this message any good? And the way she responded to him, he was hoping would be encouragement, you know? And she said, you know, I never realized God could use just any old jackass still today. And he didn't know how to take that, (laughs) you know? And she left him in suspense and walked off. You know, sometimes to realize... In, that in Christ, all of your strengths are not worth anything, can leave you with the feeling, well, you know, does that mean I'm a worthless person? No. When you look in the mirror, you see what God describes about you. We're not saying that we are so lowly, that we're so abased, that we're just worthless people. We're saying that whatever our talents, whatever our strengths are, we count them as worthless because it's really only God's power in us that is worth anything. As we think about these people that God calls, not many noble, not many uh, of distinguished birth, think about some of these. How about Enoch? Enoch is a guy in Genesis that shows up before the flood. And Enoch is some 65 years old, right? And he's just having a good time in life until he has a son named Methuselah. Everybody knows Methuselah is the oldest guy in the Bible, but what people don't remember is his name means, when I die, judgment comes. Well, (laughs) After he had a kid that was named Methuselah, Enoch began to walk with God. Why did God wait till somebody was 60 years old to begin to use them? Because God uses unlikely people. When you think of Abraham, we call Abraham the father of faith, the guy who spawned three world religions. We're all excited about Abraham. We teach our kids to sing, Father Abraham had many sons and all of those things, right? Would you have called Abraham? He was old when he was called. He was in his 70s when he was called. His father was an idolater. He was married to his half-sister. He had a nephew that became so associated with these... I mean, he went to live in a city that would make San Francisco look like a paradise. You know, I mean, God calls unlikely people. Jacob, his very name, people say, means trickster. You know, we're talking about a guy that God put the name Israel on and one of the most important figures in all of the Bible... And what do we know best about him? That he lied and deceived his brother. That he deceived his father. He put on a, a garment to deceive his father uh, about his brother. You know? And yet God used him. You move on from Jacob to somebody like Joseph. You know? Joseph was so hated by his brothers, you think your sibling relationships are rough, that they threw him in a hole and went back and told Dad he was dead. Okay? They hated him. And then... He goes and gets accused of rape. You know, is this the guy you would really use, the one that was hated by his brothers that is accused of rape? He gets thrown in jail, you know? Oh, well, that's great. Now we've got a convict for Jesus, right? God uses unlikely people. He took that guy and elevated him to the highest position in the land, gave him a name, Zophanoth Panea, which means Savior. You know, he will take something that's lowly and despised and use it. How about Moses? You know, think about Moses for a minute. If you are the guy that is called to deliver your people out of the hands of Egypt, would you pick somebody that had been raised all their life in Pharaoh's household? I mean, he was raised by the enemy. (laughs) You know? If your rival is uh, Alabama and you're in in Louisiana, you know, you don't want a last-minute substitution as a quarterback from Bear Bryant over over to uh, LSU, right? That could be kind of suspect. Unlikely choices for heroes. On top of that, he was a murderer. On top of that, he stood before God and said, I, you know, I, I stammer, I can't, I, I can't speak, you know, I'm scared. And yet God used him. 
You know? When you move on from Moses, you see somebody like Rahab, a whore. Oh, my God, he said whore. That's right. The Bible says it all the time. Describes the nation of Israel as a whore. You know? All kinds. said, why? Oh, I mean, that's who would do that? Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors. He used a woman named Rahab that was a whore, and she got in the genealogy of Christ. Why? It wasn't because she was strong and, and well capable and all those things. She realizes she was in need of help, and she asked for it. And so he gave it to her. Move on from there. You see somebody like Gideon. God shows up and says, hey, man. An angel speaking to him says, you're the Lord's mighty warrior. You know where Gideon was when God said that to him? He was hiding. He was hiding because he was terrified. He was not in the normal place you're supposed to be threshing grain. He was hiding because he was scared to death. And God shows up and says, hey, you're a mighty warrior. You know, not exactly the guy you would choose, is it? You could move on from there into... I mean, guys like David, how more obvious could it get? You know, have you ever wondered why God hid the body of Moses but kept the body of David for people to even go see in a tomb today? You know, from the time Moses had his encounter on Mount Sinai, right on through to the end of his life, there's only really one major error. And it wasn't all that major. You know, speak to a rock or hit a rock. You all know what I'm talking about, right? We have this thought that we need to lift up Christian leaders, that they're somehow perfect, because it, it alleviates a responsibility in us to live it like the examples we see. And what God was worried about is Moses has done so well that if I leave him around, they'll worship Moses. So he hid his body. But why not David? Because God uses weak and lowly things. What was David? Well, David killed a man's wife. I mean, killed a man to sleep with his wife. The baby died as a result. He, he covered it up. That's not exactly what you put on Charisma Magazine, is it? But God leaves those kind of people, people like me, as an example so that you can say, man, they're greatly flawed, and yet they're used by God. That's why he's left around. You move on from David right into all of the... Uh, every minor prophet. Matt and I were talking about this this morning. We're talking about farmers. We're talking about guys that, you know, are from Watson, Louisiana that are rebuking nations for God. He uses unlikely people, and we can take encouragement in that. Say, so, well, yeah, but you had not seen weakness like, like my weakness. Oh, I assure you, there's not a temptation that you've had that is unique to you. You know, and that's what the devil always says. Well, you're the only one, you know. I mean, how many times have you heard that in your life? If they all knew, friends, we do all know. All I have to do to know what goes on in your mind is think about what's happened in mine. And yet... God. Uh, there's this woman named Becky Clawson in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She was kind of harsh. I mean, she was a grading person to me, but I can look back and see how it was so awesome. I worked uh, in the same area that she did for a summer, and I had to paint. And David was painting with me at the time. I, I didn't, you know, anybody that knows me, I'll build. I'll even venture out into electrical, which scares Matt. I'll do whatever it takes, but I hate to paint. I mean, I hate it. So I, I get this job painting because I've you know, told God I'll do whatever it is he wants me to do. And I would rather clean toilets than paint, but of course, that he knows that. So I'm painting, and every time this woman asked me how I was doing, a lot of people don't care when they ask. You know, how are you doing? Well, uh, you know, and you start to say, and they, they walk off. You know, they didn't really want to know. It's just a common greeting. Well, she really cared. She wanted to know how you were doing, but with an exception. <laughs> she'd say, hey, Eric, how are you doing? And if I just dismissed it, she'd say, no, how are you doing? So i I started to tell her, you know, well, I think painting kind of sucks. And uh, she rebuked me every time. She said, nevertheless, God. And, you know, I'm like, why'd you ask, you know? And every time I started saying, she said, nevertheless, God. And what was at first kind of harsh to me eventually became encouraging. This woman who had been battered by an alcoholic husband, who had seen her son move into alcoholism, run away from home, all of these things, had learned in life, whatever came her way, whatever weaknesses she had in her life, she viewed it in the light of God and said, well, nevertheless, God, that's what I choose to concentrate on. You know, encouragement in the Bible is often like that. Encouragement is not always the pat on the back that says, oh, you know, I think you're wonderful. Encouragement comes in the form of a goad or a, a prick, the Bible says. It's what you poke a cow with to get it to change directions. That's what the Bible calls encouragement. It's not necessarily what we would think of as encouragement, but it is. When we look at Paul, who is probably the most exalted figure in our minds other than Jesus because of all that he endured for the kingdom, listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 
Corinthians. You should, might already be there. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and this is uh, page 1267 if you're in the Thompson chain. If you're not, if you stay around here long enough, you'll get one. <laughs> when I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Paul said, I was trembling, I was in fear, and I was in weakness when I came to you. This is the guy that we revere the most. When you think of Paul, do you think of weakness? Do you think of fear? Do you think of trembling? No, you see the guy that blinded somebody who came against the gospel. said, you son of everything that's perverse, you're blind. And he was blind. You see the guy that, you know, raised people from the dead. The guy that in Acts, you know, this, this guy's casting out demons. And uh, he says, you know, in, in the name of Jesus and, and Paul who preaches him, come out. And the demon says, Jesus, I know, and I've heard about Paul. <laughs> but who are you? And he beats him up. You know. We're talking about Paul who made an impact on the devil's kingdom. And he says he was fearful and trembling and in weakness. And why did he say that? So that his presentation wouldn't rest upon man's wisdom, but on a demonstration of God's power. You start to see this relationship. Yes, every one of you is weak, just like me. I might be the weakest. And that allows God's power to be displayed in you. Because the weaker you are when you accomplish something, the more people go, you know, I've known him a long time. There's no way he could have done that by himself. That had to be God helping him. I suspect that Paul probably preached pretty well. Although a guy did fall asleep one time while he was preaching. Y'all remember that? In the book of Acts, a kid named Eutychus is sitting in the second story window in Luke writing. You know, it says, Paul went on and on. And I know y'all can relate to that this morning. And he fell out of the window, you know, and he died. You know, but if Paul didn't preach well, something that he did do well is he went down, he laid on that kid, nose to nose, eye to eye, face to face, just like he had read about a man named Elijah doing, and he got up from the dead. So I'll try not to put you to sleep, but if I do, we'll pray that you are resurrected. <laughs> I, I once told that story, you know, about Eutychus falling out of the window, and I used it as justification. You know, I said, <laughs> you know, even Paul preached on and on, so, you know, what's an hour or two, you know? And then I was reminded that, you know, he also had raised people from the dead, and I've not yet had that. Uh, Stay in Corinthians, but turn to your right to 2 Corinthians. Listen to this attitude that Paul begins to say. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians 11, so it's quite a few pages to your right. 2 Corinthians 11 is page 1290 in the Thompson chain. You get this whole message in at one time in my life I could quote this, and I can't now, and so I, I won't try. But I'll tell you, in 2 Corinthians 11, you hear all of Paul's sufferings mentioned. How many times he was beaten with a rod? How many times he was in the ocean, shipwrecked? How many times he was in danger uh, amongst his countrymen, amongst Gentiles, in hunger? He was even naked and cold, he says. All of these things, right? And then you get all the way down somewhere around verse 30. Uh, actually, let's start in uh, 28. After going on and on, and I don't mean on and on as if we didn't want to hear it. It's what makes us love him. When you see what he endured for the gospel, you get excited because you think, man, if that guy could be beaten with a cat of nine tails and rods and do well for the gospel, surely I can endure an ignorant boss or whatever it might be, right? But listen to verse 28. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin? And I don't inwardly burn? Y'all listen to that admission. People read over this and they don't know what's going on. You know, I had an English professor in, uh, in my very brief stint in college who kept saying this over and over and over. You need to learn to engage the text. And I didn't, you know, I was in one ear and out the other because the text he was talking about was weird abstract stuff, you know. It's poetry and it had to do with a, a, a mother deer. And, you know, I just wasn't interested in it, you know. Uh, but what I did pick up from him that God magnified 
is that you it's able you're able to read something without engaging the text to really look to see what it means. Paul's just got through describing everything that he suffered for Jesus. And he says, and besides all this, I'm worried about you guys all of the time. He said, who is weak? And I don't feel weak? He's not saying he doesn't feel weak, friends. That's sarcasm. He said, and, and you guys are complaining basically about being weak. You think I'm not weak? You're complaining about being led into sin. Do you think I don't inwardly burn? Paul is admitting to being weak, admitting to burning with desire he's not supposed to have. And this is one of the greatest men that, that has ever shaken the kingdom. I mean, the demons knew his name because they were terrified of him. You know, we're talking about a guy who gets bit by a snake and should die and shakes it off in the fire and keeps going. You know, who gets stoned to death in a Greek city and gets up and walks away. You know, I mean, we're, we're not talking about some peon in the kingdom. We're talking about somebody who's one of God's superstars. And you know what? It's made of the same stuff you are. Exact same stuff. Do you think God can use people that are weak? Uh, we won't read the rest of these because there's some other stories I want to get to. But in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, you have the whole discourse with, with Paul. And he's basically saying, man, I understand your weakness. I've cried to God. I have this thorn in my flesh. And I keep saying, Lord, will you remove it? And he keeps saying, man, my grace is sufficient for you. And he said, but Lord, I, I did this three times. Please help me. This weakness is, is, is hard. The Lord said, hey, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul wrote that down for us to see. Paul didn't write down, I was a trained, eloquent speaker. I was a great man of God, and so God used me. He said that the way that God's power was displayed was through his weakness. What does the world do when they see weakness, though? See, you're taught to cover it up. You wear a facade. From the time you're Judah's age in school, you find out what other kids like and don't like and consider weak. And if they don't like girls, you don't like girls. And if they like the Power Rangers, you like the Power Rangers. And this goes on through adulthood till you learn to wear this facade that's not even you. You show everybody that you're tough, that you're smart, that you're capable. You know, all of these things. That you're successful. You let your car say it. You let your house say it. You let the clothes you wear say it. You wear certain kinds. I never forget I was in the car business. You know, I, I think I made $26,000 that year, right? But... I, I started to have this desire for a Mont Blanc pen that was $175. It doesn't write any better than a Bic. What was making me feel that way? All of the other salesmen that had them. Because that was a symbol of success. You weren't a good salesman until you had a Mont Blanc pen. You know? And there I was with a Bic. We learn to wear this facade that says, I don't have any weaknesses. I'm perfect. And in Christianity, you have to lay it aside. You have to be willing. That's why. That's why the world looks at anybody who's been put in the spotlight for Christianity. And when they see a weakness, they rejoice. They get excited. They make jokes about it for years and years. Even though they have the same weakness. Because they don't admit. How many people do you think there are in this world that have looked at internet pornography but rail Jimmy Swagger day in and day night? Now, I'm not here to defend him. I don't have to. That's not, that's not my point. How many people in this world are there, you think, that throw enormous stones at anybody that they saw that has a flaw when they have that flaw? Jesus wasn't like that. Christians can't be like that. And we don't hide them. You know, they teach you in, in ministry school. One of the things they teach you is don't associate too closely with the sheep. Because once they see that you have weakness, they will no longer respect you. I say to hell with that. And I literally mean to hell with that. If I raise myself up as some facade for you to see and respect, what happens when you find out it's just that? It's a facade. You need to be able to see that I have weaknesses just like you. And it's easy to do when we're meeting in this. huh? That's why God chooses lowly things to confound the wisdom of the wise. So to get into Christianity, you don't have to be perfect. To accomplish things for God, you don't have to be perfect. The fact that you're riddled with weakness is why He chose you. And you know, this was born out in a nation before us, a nation called Israel. He said, I didn't choose you because you were the biggest nation. I don't have a world map in here, but I'm, you can't hardly find Israel on the map. It's the size of Vermont amongst the nations of the world. He said, I didn't choose you because you were the most well-equipped. I chose you because you were the least. You see that born out in David's life. He had all those brothers. All taller than him. All more well-to-do than him. All more capable than him. And that's not who God chose. So we don't need to look at our weaknesses and allow them to condemn us. Our hearts 
may condemn us, but God is bigger than our hearts. I have stood in situations where my knees wanted to buckle for fear, but God came through for me. And it would be wrong for me to deny that I was scared. There was a night Matthew and I were in New Orleans where this enormous man wanted to tear the head off of my body, which doesn't, you know, that didn't make me very happy. I'm not real excited at that thought. I, I could have soiled myself, honestly, as he approached me. And yet God came through and he provided a way out and my head still attached to my body, you know. You see that God's power is perfectly displayed in your weakness. Jesus is even an example of that. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul speaks about Jesus. Then we're going to spend the last few minutes talking about some other things. 2 Corinthians 13, so you, uh, 13 verse, I've written in here too much. 4, uh, page 1291, says, For to be sure he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him to serve you. Jesus, do you think of him as weak? No, I mean, the guy never, he never fell to a sin. He was weak in a different way. He laid aside strength and authority to become little like us, a human being. He was crucified in weakness, meaning he, he didn't resist, didn't overcome it, didn't do any of those things. He submitted to death to be an example that even the weak things of this world can be empowered by God to remain. See, have you ever watched heavyweights fight? Now, I'm, I went through years where I threw away everything that I thought had to do with anything with the world. Matt can relate to this. You know, we cleaned out each other's closets, you know, threw away CDs that I've spent 20 years trying to get back, you know. And uh, not 20, but every once in a while I get evangelistic rather than evangelistic. I exaggerate. That's the salesman in me. It's not been 20 years. It's, it, see, I'm telling you about my weaknesses. It's been about 11 years. But what, <laughs> what happened is I had this love for boxing. I thought that was pretty cool stuff. And I worked out all the time. Well, when I got saved, I, I felt dirty when I was in the gym around all of the people. Now I don't, not at all, but then I did. I also kind of ran from watching boxing because it bothered me to see men in God's image beating each other to death. Now I think it's cool. So, yeah, he said, well, when you're first born again, you have this legalistic attitude that begins to show you right from wrong. And then you learn about freedoms and ways to express God's love that aren't quite so legalistic. And that's a normal process. That's all I'm describing. But about heavyweights, you can have two men squared off with each other and one beat the other one for... Anybody know who uh, George Foreman is? Okay, I'm thinking about George Foreman as I'm telling you this, who also happens to be a Christian. He got saved after being beaten by Muhammad Ali. He's fighting a guy who's much younger than him, who everybody's worried is going to kill him. And I think it was Michael Moore. And um, Michael Moore? No, that's a, there's two. There's a boxer. I, th I think it was Michael Moore, not, not the political activist. In any case, he's fighting a much younger man. And he's being beaten. And everybody was saying that they, he was going to kill the old man anyway. And, you know, it's pretty sad that in your 40s you can be considered an old man in a sport, but he was in his 40s. And uh, he was being beaten, and it was like the seventh round. No way he's going to win. And he slipped one right hand on the jaw that dropped the guy. Just one. I mean, he'd been trying to hit him the whole fight, and he had hit him several times, but one. The kingdom is kind of like that. You can be beat up with weaknesses most of your life, but because you love the Lord... He's with you in trouble, and He will rescue you from it. You don't have to win the fight. You have to stay in there long enough for the judge, who happens to be a family relative, to give you the decision. See, that, that's how that works. And you never know when Jesus will help you when you have no more strength left in your arms to come up with the one right hand that knocks out that enemy. First Samuel. Okay, if you will hang a left back to the beginning of your Bible. We've got a couple more scriptures in about 15 more minutes. Uh, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And from Judges, you're going to pass through Ruth into Samuel. And 1 Samuel is on page 304. We're going to be in chapter 5. I want to remind you of this story. There is a Philistine god. And by the way, the Philistines were like Goliath. I mean, he, he was a Philistine, but they were also like Goliath to Israel. They were bigger than Israel. They were more capable than Israel. They were better equipped for warfare than Israel. 
In fact, you know, one of the things that perplexes uh, uh, people who study geology and who study ancient uh, cultures and when metals were developed and all the things really have a hard time with what they see in the Bible because the Bible says the Philistines had swords that were made of iron in a time when people weren't supposed to have that. But what it freely admits is that the Israelites had swords of copper. You know, in other words, it admits their weakness and talks about the enemy's strength. The Bible never hides uh, the body of Christ's weakness. But in any case, Israel is in a time when they are in conflict with the Philistines. They're technologically superior. Numbers-wise, they're superior. The area that they lived in was superior and what the ground would produce. And so you would think their God would be superior because that's the thinking of the day. Whoever's God does the best for them must be the best God, right? That's how the Romans ended up with so many. You know, if they were ever beaten, they adopted that God. If they beat somebody else, they adopted that God and put them under theirs. It's interesting when you look at the life of Constantine and apply that concept. But in any case, Dagon was one of the gods of the Philistines. Dagon had the body of a fish because he symbolized all the power of uh, water that brings life everywhere. All the sh- you know, water was pretty much the most substance, the most precious substance in the ancient world. And he had the body of a fish, but the arms head and neck of a man. And what that is almost speaking of is the power of this foreign God embodied in a man. Right? Which is not all that far from Christianity. It's just a foreign God. It's it's not one that is like ours. Israel had been so discouraged in their relationship with God because of their weaknesses, because of their problems, because of everything that they had allowed to happen in their lives that the ark of God, you know, like Indiana Jones and the ark, you know, the ark, the box, that symbolized God's very presence and power had been captured. And the Philistines brought it right in before their God and set it at his feet as if Dagon was gloating over the God of the Israelites. Now, this is not all that unlike when you find yourself, find yourself, I keep saying that, when you are struggling with something that seems to overshadow God's presence in your life. When you feel like you just can't get victory in some area, we'll learn a lesson. In 1 Samuel 5, it says, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. Day one, they come in and Dagon is falling on his face. So they stand Dagon back up. But the following morning when they arose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. Golly, why are we reading about that? I want you to hear this. The enemy that faced Israel technologically superior, number superior, in every way superior, had their big towering God and put Israel's little representation of God's presence before His feet. They had taken it from Israel. Israel didn't give it up. There was never a lower point in Israel's history for them up till this point and now. They felt weak, defeated, helpless. Their God was captive in a foreign God's house. God does not need you. He does not need your flesh. He does not need your strength to knock down the obstacles that are before you. Sometimes they fall and get stood back up, but eventually their heads and hands will be broken off so they can't harm you. You just have to wait to see the day of God's deliverance. Sometimes you do not win the round. You just stay in the fight. You know, not every day is, oh, happy day in the kingdom. I've been preaching on joy. I realize there are days where it is hard to smile. But if you can fight through it and keep the smile through the difficult times, you know that your victory is coming. God will break the head and hands off of whatever has been placed before His presence. He will deliver you. Whatever it is. Jobs, legs, wives, husbands, whatever it is. You just have to give Him a chance. You know what happens next? Israel couldn't defeat the Philistines because they weren't really being faithful to God. But in any case, they couldn't. But everywhere the Philistines put this ark that represented the presence of God, they broke out in tumors and boils. And one city said, hey, I don't want it. Look, uh, you guys take it. And then that city to another. 
until God had so ravaged the Philistines that they sent the presence of God back to Israel. said, look, your God's hand, this is how they said it, your God's hand is heavy upon us. We're sending him back. The Philistines recognized God's power in their lives more than the Christians did. We need to learn from these lessons. One more and then we're going to quit. Second Kings, which from here is to the right. This story is found in three places in the Bible. But I'm just going to read it from one. And I know that makes everybody happy. This is page 433 in the Thompson chain. I'm actually going to start on page 432, which is 2 Kings 19, verse 20. Some people call him Sennacherib. Some call him Sennacherib. Whatever you want to call him this morning. There was an Assyrian king. And this Assyrian king shows up during the life of Isaiah the prophet and a king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a pretty godly guy. He caused revival in Israel. He caused people who had not been serving God in Israel to serve God again. But he was not a perfect guy. You know, much like us. We've experienced revival in our lives. We, we love the Lord now. We want to encourage others to do, but we still have weaknesses. Inwardly, sometimes we're trembling with fear. Well, there's this Assyrian king who comes against the city of God, who comes against Israel. He's outside Jerusalem, just outside the walls. He's defeated everybody he's ever fought. I mean, everybody who stood up to him has fallen. This is the powerhouse on earth, the superpower. But in an old world time, when the way you were superpower was by leveling everything in your path, not, not through economics. And he stands outside the city walls and he says all kinds of neat things. He says uh, to Hezekiah, hey, uh, I've killed everybody that's come against me and if you're trusting in your God, it's pretty vain hope for salvation. And uh, Hezekiah's officials say, look, when you talk to us, don't talk to us in a language that the people understand, okay? We're all educated here. Let's talk in our language, you know, because they, they spoke Hebrew. They, I mean, they spoke several languages, but they didn't want the people to understand what they were saying. So they're saying, hey, look, talk to us in Assyrian. Don't, don't talk to us in Hebrew because they were worried about the people getting scared because they were scared. So uh Sheriff says, no, no, I'm not going to do that because it's not you kings who uh, are going to have to eat your own filth. It's all of these people here whose God will not deliver them and you won't deliver them from my hand. Now, eat your own filth is one of those phrases that has survived to today, put a little differently. And it doesn't take much imagination to understand what he's telling them, huh? Okay. He said the most vile, disgusting things about God. And the people were shaking in their boots, but Hezekiah prayed. And basically his prayer was, Lord, I believe you're the only way that we can survive this. Will you help us? And we're going to pick up where Isaiah the prophet comes to bring God's response. Uh, history records Sennacherib, by the way. I mean, you can read about him in any history book. Uh, page 432, verse 20 of chapter 19. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I have heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. The virgin daughter of Zion despises you and mocks you. Y'all, we serve a God who laughs at his enemies. You know? The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have heaped insults on the Lord. And you have said, with many chariots I have ascended the heights of the mountains. The utmost heights of Lebanon I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choices of its pines. I've reached its remotest parts, the finest of its forest. I've dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I've dried up all of the streams of Egypt. He had just finished defeating Egypt. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In the days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people drained of power are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, like tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. But I know where you stay and when you come in and how you rage against me. Did you hear that? We'll finish this in just a second. God says, oh, I know what you're saying. You're saying, I've cut down the choice of cedars. I dried up Egypt like a stream. But God had a word for him. Now get this, isn't this kind of neat? He says, I know where you live, Sennacherib. 
Now, I want you to remember that. What God said to him was, I know where you live. Because there's a focal point in the story, and it's not what you would think. It says, but I know where you stay and when you come and when you go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me, your insolence has reached my ears. I will put a hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. This will be the sign for you, O Hezekiah. Now we're talking about the king in Israel. This year you will eat what grows by itself. He said you'll eat dung. Well, I tell you what, you're going to eat what grows by itself. And the second year, what springs from that, and the third year, you will sow and reap, plant your vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. How would it be accomplished? By God's zeal. In other words, Hezekiah, you've admitted you have weakness. You can't get this job done. It's okay. I know where the guy lives. My zeal will accomplish it. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come... He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. When the people couldn't defend themselves and they admitted it, God said, it's all right. I know where he lives and I will defend them. So how is he going to do this? You know, how does God accomplish for you what you can't accomplish for yourself? Well, this time, look what he did. Verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the, morning, when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. One day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nishrach, his sons, Adremelech and Sherezer, cut him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Eskardan, his son, succeeded him as king. Here is this great Assyrian king who says, there is nobody that can deliver me from your hand, and specifically says, God can't deliver me from your hand. My gods are bigger. God says, that's all right, guys. I know where he lives. Don't worry. You're going to eat from your own fields today. He sends one angel. Now, Jesus said he had more than 12 legions, a legion being 2,000 to 6,000 angels, more than 12. Do the math. This is one angel killed 185,000 men in the night. And what happened to Sennacherib? He goes back to the house of his God. You remember God said, I know where you live? And he put him to death by his own son's hands in the house of his God. By these kind of stories, say, well, you know, they're just old stories. No, the Bible says they were written down for your benefit. Because what God is trying to teach you is that when you place His presence before your problems, instead of your problems before His presence, He will cut their hands and heads off. He will deliver you whatever it takes. But what we tend to do is we cry to help for God. We cry to God for help like, Magic Genie, come save me. And then when you don't see the results right away, when you don't see deliverance right away, when it looks good for a while, but then you have some momentary troubles, you give up on Him. You quit telling your problems how big God is, and you start telling God how big your problems are. What we need to learn to do is admit we have weaknesses. Tell Him. Tell Him about them all the time so that He might display His power in you and then trust Him to do it. Let that ark get placed right before Dagon, your, your problem. Let Sennacherib come outside your walls and tell you you can't. And then let God's power do it through you. But what would have happened if Hezekiah buckled during all the tough talk and ran out and made a treaty? This happened to other kings. You know what they did? They cried out to other men on the earth, chariots, the tanks of the day. Say, hey, come. We'll pay you. Help deliver us. That's a vain hope for salvation, the Bible says. Hebrews 11.34. You don't have to go there. I'll tell you what it says. It describes... Well, you can go there. I rarely lie when I'm preaching, though, so... <laughs> Hebrews 11 teaches. It starts with the definition of faith. Now, faith is being certain of what you hope for, or sure of what you hope for and certain of what you cannot see. It teaches you what faith is, and then it gives you man after man who lived by faith. Whether we're talking about uh, Abraham, or we're talking about Moses, or whoever we're talking about, throughout the chapter, it teaches you the things that they did that showed their faith. And then Hebrews 11.34 says, 
that whose strength or weaknesses were turned to strength. With the help of God, they routed foreign armies. They faced the sword, prison, all of these things. We serve a God who takes the weak things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise, if you'll let Him. He does, he's not hindered by your inabilities. So why would He do that? Why would God do that? Because James 2.13 says that His mercy triumphs over His judgment. He has all the mercy in the world when you look and say, hey, I need your help. Then He comes in and instead of you receiving judgment for your weaknesses, you receive mercy. This is why Jesus said, if you don't forgive your brother, you won't be forgiven. You have to show mercy because what Christianity is based on is saying, Lord, I'm weak. I don't have all that much to offer, but whatever I have, I'll use for you. And instead of you getting the judgment of God for all of your weaknesses and sin, you receive the mercy of God. His mercy triumphs over His judgment. And what does He ask in return? For us to take like attitude. If I wrong you, let your mercy be directed towards me rather than your judgment. The same way God's is. If we took that out to the world instead of this, you're going to hell, they know they're going to hell. That's why they're doing the things they're doing. They're enjoying life now. If we took the message that mercy triumphs over judgment, if we took the message that God takes your weaknesses and makes them His strengths, if we took the message that says whatever giant is in your life, God will knock down for you, instead of telling people that they're no good, instead of telling people all the reasons that they're, God's upset with them, then we might see more salvation. Did you get saved when you realized what a rotten person you were or when you realized you needed God's help? People know they're rotten, they kill themselves. They do all kinds of other things. But what needs to happen is people realize they need God's help. You know, conviction is a great thing. And I'm glad for it. I'm glad for it in my life. But conviction that leads to repentance is what comes from God. Corinthians 7 says it. When, when conviction leads to sorrow, it brings death. That's worldly conviction. That's condemnation. That's how you know the difference between the two. Job 9 describes a courtroom setting. I really am closing. We've got it on the clock. Job 9 describes a courtroom setting. He says, Lord, even if I thought I was righteous, you'd show me some way I'm not. He said, your rod of affliction is upon me. Job was saying, it doesn't seem to matter what I do, I'm, I'm guilty. He said, if you were a man, I could confront you. But you're not. He said, what am I? He said, I need somebody. I need a mediator to lay his hand on you, God, and to lay his hand on me. Then I could speak to you without fear. Then your rod of affliction would be removed from me. God heard Job. And he sent Jesus. And Jesus has laid his hand upon God's shoulder and upon our shoulder. And he's made peace because he understands both sides of the fence. Not that God doesn't. This is God's way of making mediation for us. He gave us somebody that we can relate to, somebody that we can understand, somebody who bore flesh just like us, who understands your weakness. We don't serve a God that's without mercy. He's full of it. It's His people that are lacking it. So we're going to be more like God and show mercy to people around us. We're going to be more like God and be willing to let His strength, His power shine through our weaknesses. Don't hate yourself because you're weak. Boast about your weaknesses. That's what Paul said. So that God will gain glory. You don't need to hide and show everybody that you're perfect and only let them see the part of your life you want them to see. Let your life be an open book, good and bad, and they'll see God working through you. Stand up. We'll pray.